Brexit goes to its very own DEFCON 2. It's heading for Parliament, but what does it mean for British defence? HMS Vanguard, one of the Navy's four nuclear missile submarines, is long overdue in refit. Why? Britain tells Saudi Arabia's king, stop bombing Yemen, but is he listening? And Prince Charles is 70 and still waiting to be monarch of all he surveys. Nearly 600 pages of Britain and Brexit, yet only a couple of sentences on what it means for defence. But if the economists are right and Britain runs out of money for the next 10 years, what happens to the defence budget? And if that weren't bad enough, some of the top NATO jobs could disappear for British officers because they won't be Europeans. I'm joined by Paul Taylor, who is contributing editor at the political news platform Politico, as well as a senior fellow at the think tank Friends of Europe. Our defence analyst Christopher Lee is also with us. Hello to both of you. Uh, Paul Taylor, will Brexit reduce Britain to a third-rate military power? I think Brexit will almost certainly make defence harder for the UK. For for one thing, it's not going to be at the table where Europe takes its foreign and security policy decisions, um, including uh, decisions that involve the common security and defence policy. Um, Britain will be involved, uh, according to what we've seen from the statement on the future relationship, by invitation only. Um, and there'll be less consultation. It won't be at the foreign, monthly foreign ministers' meetings and the weekly meetings of ambassadors, which are the, the, the backbone of how uh, European uh, foreign policy and security policy is developed. But um, the other major factor, as you said, is um, potentially there will be a lot less money Uh, And already the exchange rate means that we're getting uh, less buck for our quid uh, and hence less bang for the buck because some of the um, important uh, weapon systems that uh, Britain needs to buy uh, and has already contracted to buy are sold to us in dollars. So what do you think will happen to defence spending? Well, uh, defence spending uh, is an area which is already struggling. The the arms modernisation programmes are underfunded Um, according to the National Accounting Office, which is a pretty uh, neutral sort of a body. Um, And uh, defence spending is also going to have to compete with other government priorities. Uh, Remember, people promised lots of money for the National Health Service. Um, There's a concern about uh, social welfare and fighting poverty. And all this in an environment where potentially there'll be an awful lot less revenue over the next few years, especially if there's a hard Brexit uh, and we uh, have much more difficulty in trade and in uh, in market access to Europe um, and the financial services sector, which is sort of the hen that lays the golden eggs of the British budget, um, uh, is is partly shut out of Europe. Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is listening to this. In a lot of the uh, World Economic uh, Forum, they're all saying we're talking of decades before we start to get the financial um, successes that we are promised. Now, decades, when you start messing with the defence budget and that you're on the rack, means that projects that you might decide to do, you can't do. And they're projects that last a long time. For example, if you want to build an aircraft carrier, it's going to last 50 years, and that, that sort of thing. You may actually get to the point where Britain has to start to rethink it's defence policy. Mm-hmm. What can I reasonably do in future? And, you, and that's the change that you're making. There's just one small point. I mean, the, the, the idea that we won't be able to be at the EU meetings. Let's not forget that the major 
European Defence Organization remains remains NATO. Mm. We have the chairmanship at the moment of the military committee. Uh, we will we will be going to all the meetings, the defence ministers' meetings, the foreign ministers' meetings. But there are other aspects of that where we may we may through old legislation, old agreements, not just now. We may lose commands, and we've started to lose commands, I think, because you can't do certain things unless you're a European, and that is already starting to happen. Paul Taylor. Right, and the key, the key point where that, where that matters uh, is the post of the Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe, which has, been a, uh, has always been a, a British general since 1951, um, and that position... Uh, is sort of the, 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 the cherry on the cake for, for Britain. Um, but one of the roles that, that the deputy Sakir, as, as he's called, uh, fulfills is to command European operations where the United States is not involved, but NATO kit is being used. Um, and so obviously um, you, you can't have a non-EU uh, uh, general commanding an EU military operation, or the EU says you can't. Um, and so... That would have to be done by a continental European uh, commander. Now, whether that means Britain would lose the deputy secure position or whether there would be some way of re-slicing the cake so that uh, um, certain functions were delegated, um, I think the Brits will definitely fight hard. We appear to have lost Paul briefly. There's another, there's another uh, thing that's happening already. Uh, the United Kingdom has been commanding the naval operation that has been fighting against piracy in the, off the Horn of Africa. Hmm. Uh, that has been taken away from Britain even now, and there's soon to be a... a and and it's, go, it's going to shift. That command is going to shift to, to Spain. Yeah, I asked Paul Taylor at the beginning, Christopher, um, whether Brexit would reduce Britain to a third-rate military power. I mean, the things that you're we've been talking about and describing does appear to show that Britain will lose influence as a military power, as a result of Brexit. Do you think that's true? It won't. In, in terms of NATO at the moment, for example, the United Kingdom still will rate, as it's a member of the NATO, and, and, and Brexit doesn't affect that, it will still rate uh, in accordance with other NATO uh, powers. And there are 28 NATO powers. And apart from the United States, the, Britain remains the main NATO power. But what will happen is that you'll start to run down and if you're running out of money, you don't even get to do the 2% stuff that the Americans are always saying that every member of NATO ought to spend. We won't even get there if this is true and if there's a fact that we're going to be reduced. Now, there are some other points which we, sh we shouldn't include in this. Intelligence, which could easily go by us because it's a European thing, Europol, for example. Um, yep. There will still be arrangements... Uh, supposedly, there'll still be arrangements where Britain's British intelligence, because of the, because it's a, about the best in on on the continental Europe, uh, it will still be involved very much in those things. It, Paul Taylor, I mean, it does sound yes. extremely complicated process that Britain has to go through. How do you think it should be preparing for these changes in the way it military its military does business? Well, I think that first of all, uh, Britain will try and do as much as it can through NATO. Um, because it will no longer be at the EU table. Secondly, I think that Britain needs to be to make itself useful to the EU so as to be able to share as much as possible. Um, you know, in, in, in a way, Britain's been through different phases about Europe and defence. Uh, under Tony Blair, 
and the Saint-Malo agreement, they very much wanted to be in the lead in, in, in European defense, in more integration of European defense. Then after the, they fell out with the continental allies over the Gulf, uh, over, over the Iraq war, um, uh, they, they sort of lost enthusiasm. Um, the Tories have traditionally not liked anything to do with the EU and defense and felt it detracted from NATO. Now European con- countries are set to go ahead more. And the risk for the British uh, defense industries also is that they will be excluded from projects because, uh, firstly, of the difficulty of cross-border supply chains, but because they are not considered to be EU uh, uh, companies and therefore uh, they're not going to be able to tender for some of the projects uh, or they'll only be able to tender by invitation potentially only as subcontractors now some of our biggest defense companies are cross-border companies they are not just based in the UK but uh, on the continent and how they will cope with it whether it's the uh, military as- uh, wing of Airbus or MBDA the missile makers or uh, other companies they've they've all got challenges to face up to the harder the brexit the harder it is for them uh, just to come back to something christopher was saying earlier and i really agree you know if if we really have to cut our cloth uh, uh you know to fit our our, our diminished resources um, the, the, we, we've, we're very much mortgaged to, to two major systems in the UK defence budget. One is the, the two aircraft carriers uh, and the planes to go on them, uh, and the other is uh, the modernisation of our Trident nuclear deterrent. And those in, to eat up an enormous amount of the equipment budget. To a degree, they can be stretched out over more years, although, of course, that always increases the unit cost. But um, then we really have issues like, will we be able to continue having uh, marines and amphibious landing? Will we be able to put up a, um, uh, an armored division, which is already, some people say, pie in the sky, although we are committed to NATO to do that? And what will we be continue to be able to do in the way of expeditionary operations as well? And that's why the Americans have been uh, uh, writing to uh, Gavin Williamson, the Defence Secretary, saying, "You know, your your position as a Tier One ally uh, is is sort of under threat." And on that note, we'll leave it for now. Paul Taylor from Politico and Friends of Europe, thank you. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, the Foreign Secretary meets the Saudi royals, but do they listen to what he says? And Prince Charles at seventy and a wardrobe full of uniforms. Britain's second biggest defence supplier has been placed under extra scrutiny by the MOD, according to reports in the Financial Times this week. The paper says questions have been raised over Babcock's handling of the contract to support and refit the submarines that carry the UK's Trident nuclear deterrent. One of the four submarines, HMS Vanguard, has been in dock in Devonport for the past three years for refit and refuelling at a cost of at least £200 million. The FT says Babcock has been given until the end of the year to show it can complete the work on time. Well, let's talk to Trevor Taylor, who is a professorial research fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. Good to speak to you today. Um, Is the refit of HMS Vanguard in difficulty then? Well, this is not known because except perhaps to the people at Babcock and to the people at MOD, it's been very... It's a very complicated project involving many changes to the ship and uh, and including uh, refuelling it. I, I think it's it's not 
what this says to me is that actually uh, there's problems with the relationship at the yard as well as uh, perhaps uh, some issues with the, with the project itself. Uh, for this to happen, the relationship between MOD and Babcock seems to be deteriorating. How much inf- involvement does the MOD usually have in these big maintenance contracts? Well, of course, there's a major MOD team overseeing all this activity. Uh, and uh, you know, normally you would expect this is a very collaborative and cooperative activity between MOD and the contractors because uh, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a very important area for national security and the choice of suppliers is, is really very limited. How usual is it for the MOD to ask for extra information and reporting? Well, normally these things don't come out, obviously. The, the MOD has a routine system. There's a management system called Earned Value Management where you track um, uh, progress on the project with time elapsed and with money spent. And if anything seriously deviates from, from the envisaged track, uh, then obviously there tend to be closer and closer discussions. I, I'm wondering, I don't know the answer, but I'm wondering about how much uh, transparency and openness there was between MOD and uh, Babcock on this issue. And I'm wondering about how the MOD perceives the urgency of, of Babcock's responses. But those are just uh, suppositions, questions in my mind. They're not assertions. What do you think might be the next thing that we see happening in this? Well, I think over the next few weeks, uh, there's going to be uh, something a bit clearer will will emerge because uh, somebody's obviously pressing this information, this, this issue further towards the public domain. If the submarine is going to be seriously late, then that has uh, implications for the scheduling and for the continuous at sea deterrent, uh, because obviously we're looking at the procurement of, of the Dreadnought class, which will replace the Vanguard class. And that, that in itself is, is not a low risk activity because it involves uh, building a, a new submarine and a new reactor. Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is listening to this. Christopher? One of the things that is going to happen is that Julian Lewis, who is the Conservative chairman of the House of Commons Defence Committee, uh, he wants to talk to both the MOD and to Babcock and to others down at Devonport. I mean, you you, you touched, didn't you, Trevor, about uh, it's not always clear at Devonport on what the relations are like between workforces, management, etc., on, on any project. There's a long history of this, and I think this is one of the things that we will see, and we will get more more information, even if a, a lot of it is just is written information which may not be re- publicly released. Uh, Trevor Taylor, MOD procurement and maintenance contracts seem to rely on re- relatively few companies, and Babcock has already decided to close its Appledore shipyard. Is it a risk for the MOD if these companies do get into financial difficulty? Well, uh, there are always risks for the MOD associated <laughs> with uh, with procurement from the private sector because obviously, as we saw with Carillion, if a private sector get, company gets into difficulty, the MOD is reliant on them, then alternative arrangements have to be made. Uh, I mean, Babcock's a very large company. This is not a huge part of its business. Uh, it, it's I think its turnover with the MOD is 1.7 billion a year, and this contract is is 200 million over four years. So it's uh, Babcock ought to be able to deal with the, you know, some financial uh, difficulties, some increased costs coming out of this work. Uh, the the reliance on the private sector is because is simply a reflection of the fact that you know British government has long believed that the private sector tends to perform these tasks better than the public sector can. 
All right, Trevor Taylor, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for your time today. That's Trevor Taylor from the Royal United Services Institute. Thank you. Um, Babcock have declined to give us a comment on this story, saying that they do not comment on individual platforms. The company's half-year results will be published next week. Now, Britain is backing a UN effort to get peace talks in the war between Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Tens of thousands of men, women and children have been bombed by the Saudi Arabian Air Force. British aircraft and British instructors are based in Saudi Arabia and this week Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt went to the Saudi capital Riyadh for direct talks with King Salman. Britain is campaigning for a ceasefire but the talks soon got onto the question of the killing of just one man the journalist Jamal Khashoggi last month in Istanbul. So was it all worth it? Richard Spencer is Middle East correspondent for The Times. He joins us from Beirut. Hello, Richard. Britain is one of Saudi Arabia's oldest allies and helped to set up the kingdom in 1932. But do those ties still matter? Would the king take any notice of a mere secretary of state? Uh, I think he would, actually. Um, I mean, it's never quite clear uh, how much uh, influence any one intervention, if you like, by Britain uh, has anywhere in the world these days. Um, I think Saudi Arabia is a bit different because uh, Saudi Arabia, as you say, has very close ties with Britain and America. It's, it's key um, allies abroad um, and, and also suppliers of military equipment. Um, and uh, they also know, the Saudis, that America and Britain are both separate and kind of symbiotic in the way they, they operate. So they're, they have to play this game very quick, very subtly with Britain and America, because sometimes we agree with America, sometimes we don't. Um, with uh, Brexit, with a very hostile uh, opposition in Britain in the, in the form of Jeremy Corbyn, they're not secure in their friendship with Britain. Uh, they much prefer Mr. Trump. But then on the other hand, Mr. Trump is also not a stable purveyor of policy in the long term. So so, so all that means is they have to keep both Britain and America sweet at the moment, I think. And was Jeremy Hunt's visit more than just hanging on to weapons contracts for the British? Uh, it was, a, it, it, I mean, that's a very strong part of it. I mean, I, I mean, both Britain and America are fairly upfront in that they regard the uh, uh, the, the the economic importance of us, uh, Saudi Arabia as an arms buyer as uh, uh, as you know something that's not to be sniffed at. Um, uh, I think Jeremy Hunt was um, was persuaded to meet uh, the Crown Prince, who is under fire over this killing, which most people think he is directly or indirectly responsible for. Uh, and the two men appeared alongside each other, which was, which was undoubtedly a vote of confidence in. Uh, in, in in the crown prince, which will be uh, which in, a, in any other week other than this one with Brexit would have been much more controversial, I think. Um, uh, so um, so yes, I think that's a, that that was a very significant development. And the UN is saying that uh, this is the biggest warfare crisis in the world today in Yemen. How come the main story to come out of it all is the killing of one Saudi journalist? Well, I mean, the 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 war in Yemen has been going on for four years. Uh, it's, you know, been going on simultaneously with um, other wars that at their peak were bigger, um, Iraq and Syria, particularly Syria, obviously, a, a war with which has some similarities. Um, it's been grinding on and and it's fairly stuck as well. So you have these you know, relentless casualties, but there's, it's not uh, it's not something that's proceeded in sort of news peaks, if you like, whereas the Khashoggi case um, was just an extraordinary one-off incident. I mean, unparalleled and uh, unprecedented um, in the way it was carried out. Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is also here. Christopher, what is at stake geopolitically 
in Yemen? Well, I think the first thing is is to remember that this is is also a proxy war. It is not simply the Saudis uh, bombing uh, uh, Yemen. It's a proxy war between the fundamentally Shiite Iran, who are backing the rebels, and the uh, Saudis, who are ruled by Sunnis, and neither side is going to, get, to give any any room on this uh, uh, at all. And so, in that sense, the uh, the Secretary of State was, I think, I think, the first of the so-called Western uh, uh, ministers to actually go in and talk to the king. And therefore, a little bit of a triumph, and that's all it is. Richard Spencer, it does seem that the onslaught, for example, in Hodeida in Yemen, has, at least for the moment, stopped. How hopeful is it for the people of Yemen that there could be some kind of stability sorted out in the country? Yes. Um, I mean, there's two questions there, really. Um, the pause has been put in place. Uh, there is a much lower um, level of violence there in the last couple of days. That may be thanks to Mr. Han's visit. I mean, that was... You know, one of his messages was to take the matter of Yemen back to the um, UN envoy, Martin Griffiths, who has been trying to set up peace talks all year um, um, and has you know, launched another attempt. Um, and, uh, and that's what all, all the focus is on. Now, there may well be a ceasefire. Um, I mean, that, that's definitely looking more hopeful. The, the, the international pressure from both Britain and America on the Saudis to, to agree to a ceasefire, agree to go to, um, uh, agree to, go to Geneva, or now um, Sweden, I think, is the latest proposed uh, venue for these talks, um, seems to be working. Uh, whether that leads to stability is another matter. I mean, the, the war has fractured um, Yemen many different ways, and uh, Christopher Lee is quite right to say that there's an element of proxy war between Saudi and Iran uh, here, but there's, there's also within that, there, there's hundreds of other factions, um, I mean, almost literally, but they, the, the, the pro-government side, so the pro-Saudi side is now split between um, Islamists, non-Islamist uh, nationalists, and uh, a group of southern separatists who want the old South Sudan to be split off again. Um, the Houthis themselves were divided between, you know, the original faction, uh, you know, which is quite a small faction, the Houthis, uh, the original rebel group, and their former, their their, their allies in the um, in the forces, loyal to the former president. Ali Abdullah Saleh. So, so you know, really is Humpty Dumpty. You know, you can you can maybe uh, get all the king's men around the uh, uh, around the broken egg, but whether you can put it back together again is another matter. Richard Spencer from the Times. Thank you for joining us. A new report in the US says America has lost its military edge to a dangerous degree and could potentially lose a war against China or Russia. The evidence comes from the National Defence Strategy Commission, whose members are Republican and Democrat officials. Let's talk to Malcolm Brown from Feature Story News in Washington. Hello, Malcolm. Uh, tell me about the National Defence Strategy Commission. Who, who's in it and who backs it and where does all the money come from? Hi, Kate. Well, it was created by um, Congress, so it's uh, law U.S. lawmakers created it, uh, and its goal was to look at uh, U.S. defense uh, posture and capabilities broadly, but also specifically to take a look at the national defense strategy uh, and to see whether to address the threats of the future. Uh, and it's a 12-member panel co-chaired by a former senior diplomat um, with great experience in defense policy uh, and also a former admiral um, 
so it's a, it's a mix of national security types, uh, civilians and military, all of whom uh, were pulled together for this task and who've come out with a pretty eye-opening report. Mm, how much impact is it making this report? certainly in national defence circles, uh, quite a lot. And also the language of it was obviously designed to be very plain and hard-hitting. They're talking about a crisis. They're talking about the potential for unacceptably high casualties and the loss of major capital assets in any potential conflict with Russia or China. And talking far beyond the abstract, uh, far beyond just the loss of American influence in the world, talking you know, about lives lost in any, in any potential conflict mm. and, and at a cost of uh, American treasure and security and prosperity. So very plain language, clearly designed to reach beyond the traditional national security community and engage the public and uh, the nation at large. When they're talking about a crisis, are they actually suggesting that China and Russia pose a direct threat to the United States or are they simply saying that China and Russia have improved their capabilities by comparison? Well, a bit, a bit of both. What they're saying is that China and Russia have improved their capabilities, but they've done so in a way that is deliberately designed to counteract American military power in the world. And that's a particular, particular challenge. And at the same time, they say that the threat of conflict has increased as the relative um, disparity in capability between China, Russia and the United States has narrowed. And, uh, and so they're saying, yes, China and Russia are much more capable and at the same time, the potential for conflict has increased. Uh, they're also flagging up the areas, uh, the grey zone conflict. So uh, these are areas of competition short of war as being a particular problem. They're talking about um, a lack of capability on the American side in cyber, for instance. But they're basically talking, to a, talking about a lack of capability across the board. And they're saying it's not just a question of spending a lot more money, although they say that, that the US has to, they don't put a dollar amount on it. Um, but they're saying they also, the United States also needs to look at its capabilities in things like analysis, which they say has really fallen behind too. There's another side of this, isn't there, Malcolm, that uh, uh, James Mattis, the Defence Secretary, and the previous commander of Joint, Joint Operations Command, General McChrystal, did a similar report about, I don't know, five, six years ago. They found that it wasn't the equipment and policy, numbers of aircraft, ships, manpower, uh, that was the problem. It was the problem that America's ability to actually make them work, to command them in difficult circumstances, especially in joint operations. And so Americans, if you like, the armed forces, were always talking about how big they are, but that makes a, a huge, huge problem from people who've actually got to drive them. That's true. And doctrinally and in terms of practice, some of these intense, intensive warfare capabilities, this, this report says, have atrophied, uh, particularly in the post 9-11 world, where the, the US has been focused on counterterrorism and counterinsurgency. They're saying at the same time as the Russians and the Chinese have been thinking about how to defeat the United States, the US has been focused particularly in the Middle East and on these other capabilities, and that at the same time it's lost its ability somewhat to fight these major conflicts that it was very much focused on in the Cold War. So do you think there will be, Malcolm, any potential um, reaction to this that's concrete? Well, there have been increases in defence spending, but these uh, the, the report also says that the, the US military needs greater predictability in terms of its funding source, and that's, that's an area that's really going to drive a lot of this. Um, you can't ask the US military to have over-the-horizon you know, thinking when its uh, military funding is constantly 
ebbing and flowing and it's hard to predict. So that'll be a major component on the political side, uh, whether or not uh, they can get a consensus on Capitol Hill, bearing in mind that you're about to see uh, an incoming uh, flock of Democrats uh, to the U.S. Capitol. They're going to take charge of the U.S. House of Representatives, and they are traditionally more skeptical of defence spending. Interesting times. Malcolm Brown from Feature Story News, thank you for your time today. Now, Christopher, Prince Charles was 70 yesterday, wasn't he? And there was a 43-gun salute in Green Park. Yes, the, the gun salutes actually are, are broken down. I mean, you, you, you fire for a, royal, for a royal, I mean, not at a royal, but, you know, for the... <laughs> d- d- Hopefully d- for, not. Well, it depends on the modern soldier, actually. But you, 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 you fire for a royal, then you get a few more, depending on its rank, and then you get a few more, depending on which park you fire in. So in a royal park, you know, you, you fire, let's say, 12, 12, 12 more rounds. But the, I, mean, I think the interesting thing with, with, with Prince Charles... There he is, the longest, I think, the longest monarch in waiting. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, his predecessor, no, his ancestor, I suppose he would be, you know, his ancestor, um, who was the Duke of Clarence, and he didn't realise he was waiting so long, but he waited 60 years, mm-hmm. um, and so did the, or 40 years, and, and then, of course, the other Prince of Wales, um, who was Victoria's son, he became Edward VII. Uh, at the turn of the century when she died in 1901. He's been around a long time. How many Play- uniforms has he got? She's got 47, I think. Ooh. 47 rich. I mean, there are 11 versions of the naval. You should see the wardrobes and the mothballs. I bet you have. One does. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we have time for this week. Don't forget, you can get in touch on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, you can sign up for the podcast. Just search for SITREP in all the usual podcast places. I'm Kate Chabot. Until next time, thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. Theresa May under increasing...